This is Notoriously Episcopalian. My name is Kelly Hudlow. This is a podcast of sermons and musings all about the Christian faith and especially about being an Episcopalian. This is a sermon offered for the 21st Sunday after Pentecost, October 25th, 2020 at Trinity Commons. The principal text for the sermon includes the Collect for the Day, as well as Deuteronomy chapter 34, verses 1 through 12, the death of Moses, and Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 46, when Jesus answers which of these is the greatest commandments. Increase in us the gifts of faith, hope, and charity and that we may obtain what you promise, make us love what you command. This is what we pray in our open, opening collect this Sunday. A, a person that I am connected to on Facebook, not somebody I've ever actually met in person, but somehow we've gotten connected, commented on this opening prayer and noted that in the Book of Common Prayer, excluding the Psalms, the word faith, or belief is mentioned more than 250 times. And it appears in no less than 14 of our weekly prayers. The word love appears over 200 times and is also in 14 of our weekly prayers. Hope, on the other hand, only gets mentioned 50 times and most of those are in the burial rites. And it makes it only into three of our Sunday colleagues. Now, you're probably familiar with this trio of words, faith, hope, and charity, or love, as we might have heard it. Just last week, we heard the Apostle Paul commend the Thessalonians for their work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope. And of course, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, we hear them in a very familiar sequence of, and now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. The greatest of these is love. Love being the greatest makes sense, particularly when we hear our gospel reading today. Jesus has entered Jerusalem. The events of his betrayal and trial and crucifixion are not long off. And here he has been engaging in an exchange with the Jewish leaders. First, the Pharisees came up and challenged him on the question of taxes. Then the Sadducees show up and question him on the resurrection. And now a Pharisee lawyer steps forward, perhaps thinking he has crafted the perfect biting examination and says, teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? Jesus replies seemingly without needing a moment of reflection and gives us, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law of the prophets. And putting these commands together, Jesus makes inseparable the love of self and neighbor from the love of God. It's not a two-step process. It's not conditional. If you love God, then you love your neighbor. The two have to happen at the same time. But Jesus isn't quite done with his group of challengers yet. 
he decides to ask them a question. What do you think of the Messiah? Whose son is he? And the Pharisees answer correctly and quickly by saying that the Messiah is the son of David. Now, what comes next doesn't necessarily make sense to us because it's a very particular style of argument that would have made sense in the context. One commenter says that we need to hear what comes next sort of like a dad joke. It's playing with sort of an absurdity of the juxtaposition between David's son and the psalm that Jesus cites. So Jesus says to them, if the Messiah is David's son, then how come we have this psalm where David calls the Messiah Lord? How can the Messiah be both David's Lord and David's son? It's not supposed to make sense. The juxtaposition of these two truths confounds the Pharisees to the point where they just give up asking questions completely. What I think happens in that moment is that the Pharisees realize that their hope in the Messiah was too small. The Messiah, the son of David, was to bring about the salvation of Israel, the setting of the world right, the coming of the kingdom of heaven, the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets, and a hope that big surely could not be driven into silence by a dad joke. But yet they were left silent because their hope was small and limited and fragile. In our reading in Deuteronomy, we get the last moments of Moses. Moses spent 40 years of his life leading the people of Israel through the wilderness on God's promise and the hope of fulfillment. In his final moment, God takes Moses again to the mountaintop and gives him a vision of the whole of the land that God had promised. Moses would die there on that mountaintop, seeing the promised land, but never entering it, but knowing that the true hope that he had followed all those years wasn't in the land that God had promised, but was in the relationship that God gave him. The hope and promise of God did not end in that moment with Moses' death. Moses had passed on God's spirit to Joshua, and Joshua and the people would enter the promised land, and the relationship would continue, but there would be no grave of Moses to return to because their hope could not be that limited. They could not tie this moment to a single person because their hope needed to be bigger than that because a small hope is a fragile one. These three virtues, faith, hope, and love, are called theological virtues because God is always their object. We are to have faith in God. We are to love God, which includes loving ourselves and our neighbor, and we are to have hope in God. We are called to have big, limitless, ridiculous hope. And the tricky thing about hope is it's sometimes only in the darkest moments that we see what the fullness of hope can do. Emily Dickinson describes hope in this way. You probably know the poem, right? Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. The sweetest in the gale is heard, and sore must be the storm that could abash the little bird that kept so many warm. 
I've heard it in the chillest land and on the strangest sea, yet never in extremity it asks a crumb of me. Right now, nine days out from the most contentious election, certainly in my lifetime, the storms indeed seem to be raging. The night does indeed seem to be dark. And we are called on again to look out there to find where the hope is. I think it's sort of ironic because I think there are a lot of people that are hoping right now. I think they are hoping that a particular candidate or political party will win. And when the counting is done, whenever that might be, we're pretty much guaranteed that at least half of this country is going to be gravely disappointed in the outcome when what they hoped for doesn't come true. Small hope is fragile. There are many people that are saying that this election, this season in our life as a country is about the soul of America. And I think they're right. The soul of this country is built on hope. It has always been limited by the prejudice of the day, but prophets have risen amongst us again and again to challenge us to hope bigger, to dream bigger, to let go of the smallness and hatred of the past, to find hope in tomorrow, whether it was abolitionists or suffragettes or labor unions or civil rights or the women's movement or LGBTQ. We have been a country where communities have come together because hope matters. And even when it has been dark and scary times, it is hope that has moved us forward. Not hope in a particular politician or an election, because that's why we vote so often, but hope in the people, in the communities, in our families and our neighbors. The danger of this particular moment is not that so many people are hoping that one particular candidate wins over the other. It's because that hope is too small to save the soul of our country. As Christians speaking into this moment, the thing that I think that we have to offer to our brothers and sisters, whether they believe the same way that we do, is that we know how to hope big. It doesn't mean that we ignore what's going on around us. We know the greatest commandments that Jesus gives us and involves loving God and loving our neighbors as ourselves. It doesn't mean that we are just sort of upbeat and optimistic and ignore the difficulties of the moment, but it does mean that we take on the mantles of being prophets of hope to remind each other that the hope of this country is in its people, not in a particular party, to proclaim the hope of God and Jesus Christ and to remind ourselves that our hope is the hope that stretches from the cross to the empty tomb and that is poured out by the Holy Spirit on all flesh from the first Pentecost. It is a big, ridiculous hope. So in these coming days, I invite you to pray, and I invite you especially to hope. 
to hope in a God that was audacious enough to become one of us and said that the way that you show that you love God, that part of loving God with your whole being is loving yourself as a valuable, beloved child of God and loving your neighbor and that loved us so much that death was defeated and new life was offered. I ask you to have that sort of hope, not in a particular person or party or outcome, but a hope that is built on your community and your love of neighbor and a hope that rests soundly in God. Increase in us the gifts of faith and love, but especially increase our capacity to hope and our capacity to share that hope with others. Amen.